Okay, welcome back to the program. With me now is Guy Winch, author of Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. Thanks for being here today, Guy. Let's talk about rejection, the emotional cuts and scrapes of daily life. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, rejection is one of the most common emotional injuries we sustain in daily life. And, you know, we used to have uh, the risk of rejection when we went on dates or when we were applying to colleges or for jobs. But now with social media, the risk is all around us because a lot of people, when they go on uh, Facebook and they like their friends' vacation pictures, but when they post their own and their friends don't like them back, feel rejected. And when they they tweet and retweet their friends' uh, 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 Twitter posts and they don't get retweeted themselves, they feel rejected. And so now with social media and our massive involvement with social media, the the uh, frontiers of rejection have expanded, and they're truly all around us. And the opportunities to feel rejected have just grown innumerably. Guy, you say that we drastically underestimate the pain rejection elicits and the psychological wounds they create. Can you expound upon that? I'd really, I'd really like to know more about that, if you could tell our listening audience. Yes, one of the interesting findings about rejection is, is that rejections really hurt. And they've done a lot of studies, and some of them have used functional MRI machines to see what actually happens in our brains when we get rejected. Why do rejections hurt so much? Even the the small ones can really sting. And what they found was really shocking. They found that when we get rejected, the same pathways in the brain get activated as get activated when we experience physical pain. Really? complete overlap. And it's, and it's the only emotion that does that, that really triggers uh, pathways of emotional pain. And that's why, for example, the expression hurt feelings, which mm-hmm. usually comes after mm-hmm. a rejection, that term is used in almost every language in the world because hurt is really what it's at. Pain is really what characterizes uh, the wounds of rejection. Now, why would that be? The theories are that when we evolved as hunter-gatherers in tribes, we couldn't survive alone. So to be ostracized from the tribe, to be rejected from the tribe, would literally be a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And so we developed an early warning mechanism to alert us to when we might be in danger of being kicked out of the tribe. And that means that the people who experience rejection as more painful were more likely to then correct their behavior and stay in the tribe. So Mm -hmm. there was an evolutionary value Uh in experiencing rejections as painful. And over many, many, many generations, it became more painful and more painful because it was very adaptive uh, for people to respond that way. Those who did survived. Those who didn't, didn't correct their behaviors and didn't pass along their genes. So are you saying that as humans, we're sort of primal pack animals and we don't want to be cast from the village, sort of speak, so... I, I prefer the term social animals. <laughs> Pack animals <laughs> evokes a different, uh, you know, connotation. <laughs> okay. I'm, yes. thinking, I'm thinking of my dog. <laughs> and then you yes. make me wonder if when I reject my dog, if he actually has his feelings hurt. 
That's such a great question. I mean, I know you're joking, but that's actually a really No, actually, I, I am joking, but I am serious as well because I often wonder if, uh, because, you know, dogs have those just beautiful puppy dog eyes no matter how old they are. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if I'm, if I'm going out and I look at my dog and he's got that look on his face like, oh, please, oh, please don't leave. Don't reject <laughs> me. You know, and then I say, that's just what you really look like. You're not really that way. And then I really wonder. So I'm really, <laughs> no, but you know, I, I love to be off talking about my dog. <laughs> No, but, but if you see dogs interact in a pack and, and, and the leader of the pack, you know, like, shoes away one of the dogs, you know, they, they, they slouch, their tail is between the legs, whether they're experiencing something similar to physical pain for them, it's very possible. And so, okay, so, but, all right, so let's get back to this whole thing about rejection. And, and you, you even say that inconsequential rejections stir up highly aggressive tendencies. You know, I mean, so, so what is that all about? Is that sort of like you were talking about the whole evolutionary thing and, and um, you know, be sort of cast out? Well, I think a, a physical pain also does that. When, you know, when, when someone, you know, uh, bumps into you by mistake and it really hurts, <laughs> you really have an instinct to swat them. I mean, in other words, it's a, it's a natural response to physical pain. But what's interesting about rejection is, for example, there was one report by the Surgeon General. It was a quite a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago. But they, they studied rejections in, in uh, teens, and, they, and their conclusions were that rejection experiences were more responsible for teen violence than drug use, poverty, or gang affiliation. Um, so why is that? Because, again, when we get rejected, it's very painful, and it makes us very um, aggressive. When we feel physical pain, it makes us irritable. It makes us angry. And the thing is, when we experience even small rejections, and this is the thing, by the way, about rejections. They did studies in which they had somebody, you know, had the, the subjects be rejected in an artificial, in a fake situation. But the subjects didn't know it was fake. And then they told the subjects, and then they asked the subjects how they felt, and they saw that they were experiencing emotional pain. And then they said to them, oh, you know what, but that was actually just a, there was a research confederate who did that. It wasn't even real. And telling them it wasn't real didn't diminish the emotional pain really? they felt. Because, and, and, you know, you can justify it after you get rejection and have a great explanation for it, you know, but the truth is it still stings because we are so hardwired in that way. And so even very small, and in these studies, you know, they didn't do big rejections. They were two strangers were tossing a ball, and they didn't toss the, pe the person a ball. Mm -hmm. This is about as minor as rejections can be, and still it impacted people's self-esteem and their mood and their aggression, and, and even very small rejections really tweak us. And the problem is that when it is a small rejection, our thought tends to be, well, I really shouldn't be upset about that, or if I'm upset about that, what's wrong with me that I'm upset about that? Am I such a loser? I mean, why, why am I reacting so strongly? And it's so important for people to know you're reacting strongly, even to mild rejections, Mm -hmm. because we are wired to react very strongly, even to mild rejection. So it, getting practical here, we should probably give up caring about what other people think of us because it's, it's going to make us feel a lot better about ourselves, no? Uh, if we could, but A, we cannot, and B, we are <laughs> animals. <laughs> we cannot. <laughs> no, we can't. Because, I mean, if you can say to yourself, well, I don't care what they think. But, you know, I mean, most people, even if you don't care, in one of those experiments, for example, they told the, the, you know, where the research confederate rejected people by not tossing them the ball. In one of those versions of that experiment, they said to the subjects, you know, the two people who didn't toss you the ball are actually here for a different experiment, and they're members of the Ku Klux Klan. And that didn't in any way diminish how uh, people felt. Wow. Even, yes, even black people felt as rejected and hurt by that, even though these are people that we despise. And so, 
The idea is it's very difficult for us to switch off what other people think. We are social animals. This is how we evolved. And way before humans, this is, you know, even monkeys and primates are social animals. It is wired into our DNA and into our brains that it does matter what other people think. So what's what's the uh, solution? How can we, since your book is Emotional First Aid, um, what what can we do to kind of alleviate some of that pain when we are rejected? Right. So, you know, in, in this chapter about rejection in the book, what I do is I, I, I break down the different kinds of emotional wounds rejection elicits, and then I present different treatments from each of those. And since we're not going to have time to go through all of them, I'm just going to suggest one which I think is the most a powerful one and a, and a pretty powerful one. And that is that actually two things. Number one, you do have to restore your self-esteem. Your sense of self-worth gets you know, uh, injured, gets bruised when we get rejected. And based on the size of the rejection, the bruise can be small or it can be very, very large, obviously. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to stop the bleeding. And that means that it, we have a natural response after a rejection to become self-critical. And in that sense, we go and then we do more damage than we even sustained by being self-critical, well, what's wrong with me, and why did I do that, and why didn't they like me, and, and, and we suddenly take a small wound and make it much, much bigger. So oh, the first goodness. thing we want to do is let's not get self-critical after a rejection. It's fine to evaluate whether you had any kind of culpability. That takes just a few minutes. But starting to look at every single fault you have and every single shortcoming is certainly not useful, and it is damaging. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. It's kind of like but beating yourself after you've already been knocked down. Exactly. You don't want to kick yourself when you're already down. But that's down. kind of. But, but we do do that as human beings, don't we? You know, we start putting ourselves down. Oh, I'm not. You know. You know what? And I have to say, I mean, this is one of, one of the reasons I wrote the book. Is this, there's this very strange discrepancy we have between our physical health and our emotional health. You know, we would never, for example, get a real cut on our arm and walk around unbandaged and put salt in our wounds. We would never take a physical wound and make it worse. But psychological wounds, we do that all the time. Why do you think that is? Because I think we have much less awareness. Um, you know, a lot of people will even, even now will say to me, like, oh, you just have to suck it up. Or, you know, people will even say to people who have clinical depression, oh, just, you know, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and all kinds of, you know, like, don't attend to the fact that you were wounded in some way. And I, I just, it boggles the mind, but we don't have that awareness about emotions as we do about our physical bodies and and we don't have the recognition that emotions and how we feel can really strongly strongly impact everything we do our decisions our success our physical health so there's a lot of catching up we have to do in terms of the mind because the body has gotten all the attention so far and we really need to expand it but i just want to get back to that you know to the one other suggestion i can make for people when they experience rejection, and that is to to really try and revive their Mm self-esteem. And one of the best ways to do that is by self-affirmations. And self-affirmations are statements that we generate about ourselves that validate qualities we know we have that are valuable. So, for example, if you got rejected by a dating partner, Mm -hmm. make a list of five qualities you know you have, you know you bring to the table as a as a, as, a, as, a, as a dating, as a relationship prospect, you might be a good listener, you might be emotionally available, you might be loyal, you might be a good vacation planner, a great cook, whatever it is, write down five qualities that you know are important. And then choose one of them and spend five minutes, ten minutes at the most, writing a two-paragraph essay about why that quality is important, how you've exhibited it in the past or how you might exhibit it in the future, and what's the impact it might have on the other person. Because that will remind you, instead of focusing on, well, I'm not blonde enough or tall enough or rich enough or this enough, 
that will remind you, no, I have actually valuable qualities I bring to the table that other people will find value in. And that will do much more to restore your self-esteem than just going on a search-and-destroy mission for any kind of faults you might have. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I have some um, questions that have come in from the website, and I just um, wanted to ask you a couple here. Katie from Alston would like to know, why does it seem like bad things always happen to the same person? Uh, look, I, I don't think bad things always happen to the same person, but I think that if you just look at, at, at the probability of things, there are, you know, bad things will happen to us in, in periodic fashion, but then once in a while they'll accumulate, and then there'll be a rush of them in a row. And the thing is, we tend to remember when we have three or four bad things happen to us in a row, and we tend to not remember as well when we have three or four good things happen to us in a, in a row. You know, again, in terms of evolution, it's much more adaptive for us to note the dangers and to note the non-dangers. Mm -hmm. And so we're much more clued in to bad things, and so we're just paying much more attention when we're seeing you know, uh, a, a, you know, a certain person have a run of very bad luck. But if that person then has a run of very good luck or a different person has a run of good luck, we'll say, oh, that's nice, but it won't stand out for us. So, the self, so are you saying then, Guy, that the self-talk is, um, is um, more negative when a lot of negative things have happened, but yet when positive things are happening, we're not reiterating that in our mind, like, oh, great, this happened and this is wonderful and that kind of thing? Yes, and in fact, there are certain, uh, there, you know, there, there are many people in the certain cultures that actually are against positive self-talk because it'll give you a swollen head, or it'll make you arrogant, or all these kind of, you know, unfounded fears that, you know, that you'll, you know, you'll, and, and those are not true. I mean, it'll just actually improve your mood and allow you to use your skill sets in a more productive manner. So, what you say when you talk to yourself really does matter. Absolutely. So, let's talk about that a little bit um, because. I, my understanding was that saying positive things when you're being upset can actually make you feel worse. Did I misunderstand that, or did I read that incorrectly? Um, it's not that saying positive things when you're upset, but we know that when people have low self-esteem, um, and, and, and our self-esteem fluctuates, literally it's like a hair day. You can have a bad hair day, you can have a good hair day. Everyone knows this. We can wake up one morning feeling fine about ourselves, and we can wake up one morning just feeling bad about ourselves. For no, literally wake up for an unclear reason. So our self-esteem can fluctuate. When our self-esteem is, is lower, what we find is that people are much more resistant to compliments when their self-esteem is low. They, they, they really bristle at compliments when they're feeling bad about themselves. And, and the reason that is is because, in general, when, when we hear a message and it falls outside our, uh, our, our Of us telling system, ourselves we're just a big jerk? <laughs> Well, no, but, but, but for example, if somebody just got, you know, rejected and, um, and then and, uh, by, by, by three different, you know, prospective dates, and the friend says to them, oh, but no, but you're so beautiful, that'll just rub them the wrong way because reality just told them they're not beautiful enough, perhaps. And so they're not feeling beautiful, and it falls too outside their belief system, and we tend to reject messages that fall too outside our belief system. And when we're feeling bad about ourselves, when our self-esteem is low, our belief system is that we're not that worthy. And so we, we bristle at compliments. And when we're feeling better about ourselves, we can respond in a better way to compliments. So, and, and what, what brings that, uh, self, what, what makes that self-esteem um, fluctuate? Like going from the low to the high or, you know, so-so, whatever it might be. Well, there are internal factors and there are external factors. And the internal factors are generally our general emotional resilience. Um, how we tend to deal, for example, with typical emotional injuries. If we tend to just, you know, push them under the, 
under the rug and not tend to them, or if we tend to try and make ourselves heal, if we spend time trying to focus on, on positive things and optimism, you know, then, then that will make a difference. But life events make a difference. When you really succeed at something, it's going to give you a self-esteem boost. Mm-hmm. And when you fail at it, it's going to harm your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And the more meaningful that thing is to you, the bigger impact it will have. So, okay, let's talk a little bit. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. But let's talk, let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about gossip. Um, how that makes people feel. I'm always sort of fascinated with that. You know, the way that I think the people who gossip a lot, I think it, it, it kind of lowers their self-esteem because it seems like they're always trying to put other people down to make themselves feel better. So, okay, but you're, you're assuming that it's, the gossip is negative. I mean, maybe it is. I mean, but the, the gossip can also be, oh, have you heard this great thing that happened to so-and-so? I guess when I think of the word gossip, I don't think of positive. I think, I, I think yeah, generally of. Like, yeah, I yeah. think that's what most people Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just an optimist, so I always... Okay, good. Well, I, yeah, I don't... I, I guess I would just think of news <laughs> as no, positive, but gossip is... When I see, hear the word gossip, I think <laughs> not good stuff. But anyway, okay. okay but well, I'm, I'm talking about participating in gossip that's, that's negative. Okay, so, so first of all, you know, um, self-esteem is also a relative thing because it's, it's about how you're doing compared to others, right? Mm-hmm. So if you got a D, if you're in college and you got a D on an exam, that's going to hurt your self-esteem unless you then find out that all your great friends got an F and then suddenly not so much, and then, then you're going to feel better. So, you know, there's a comparative element to gossip that in, by which we gauge our, our, our self-worth and our social worth by seeing how we, how we fare compared to other uh, people, number one. Number two, uh, gossip has another factor in it, in that it, it, it is a, a testament of our social connection. It is a testament of, of how, uh, you know, uh, how, how in, in informed we are of things that are going on. So people who gossip and who gossip a lot, you know, with many different people, have, all, have a big social network in that sense, have a big information, non-formal information network, which they can feel empowered by. Because... Sometimes people who gossip feel really great about themselves when they get to hear it first. And when they, everyone else has heard it and they don't, then they feel bad about themselves. So people also use gossip as a measure of their social connections, of their social placement within a network, how central they are. Okay. All right, fantastic. Thank you. I have a question. Rick from Belmont wants to know, do you believe Guy in karma? Personally, do I believe in it? Yeah. Uh, no. I uh, personally do not. I really uh, think, though, that this is how karma works. In other words, if you're a positive person mm-hmm. and what you're putting out there is positive, obviously, um, then you have a much, more, much bigger likelihood of that coming back to you because that's what you're putting out. People can tell when a certain person is in a, is in a good mood or a bad mood, whether they're smiling or not. You know, for example, authentic smiles, ones mm-hmm. that involve crow's feet to the eyes, those are authentic smiles, <laughs> you know, elicit an automatic response to the smile back from the other person. If we're out there smiling and being positive, we're going to get a lot of positivity back, much in the same way if we're out there smiling and not, you know, making eye contact with people and being negative, we're going to have negative things come to us. And so I think karma works. So that, that is way. karma, isn't it? No? Yes, but that's how I think it works, not, not that there's some kind of ether that, you know, that, uh, that, that is doling out the good and the bad luck. Well, you know, there does seem, you know, and a, a person asked this question before, it seems that sometimes a lot of bad things happen to one person. I, I've seen that before, too, and it's kind of almost a little spooky. Um, kind of makes you wonder, like, wow, that person just seems to be just hit with so much bad luck. And, um, 
you know, I'm just wondering, is it something that person is, is putting out and they're getting more of it back because they are negative or is it just a, you know, it could happen to anybody? I, I'm, I'm curious about that. Look, I, I, I've seen, for example, on some of the uh, reality television shows, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the competition shows, or the, or the, you know, you'll see sometimes people who are so unaware of how they're coming across. They're coming across so brusque, yes. so aggressive, yes. and difficult, and they're so unaware, and they'll turn off five people in five minutes, editing notwithstanding, and then when five people turn against them, they'll be, they'll be bewildered. Well, what are these people here, and why is this happening to me? They have no idea that the people are just responding to a very negative vibe that they just put out. And, and in that sense, you know, yes, if, if you're a negative person or if you are unpleasant or if you're just in a bad mood or perhaps and you're a good person but you're in a bad mood, you can put a lot of negative vibes out there which, which make bad things happen to you in the sense that then people won't befriend you or, or, or people will, will dump you as a dating prospect or they won't invite you to this kind of event which means you'll lose out on the opportunity because the other person you work with who was up for a promotion with you did go to the event etc etc there's a chain of reaction that happens i think with these things Absolutely. that that can make the person you know at, at times somewhat at fault but it's also just statistical probability means that there are some people who are going to experience much more bad luck than others just for the luck of the draw and not necessarily because they're putting something negative out there we have time for just one more question here sarah from quincy would like to know how do you feel one should be with the loss of their animal is it similar to other grief um, I absolutely uh, think it is. I think that, you know, cherished pets, when people have them, uh, is a huge loss uh, for, for uh, uh, people. People experience, uh, you know, significant grief around it. They can, you know, they, they really can feel very, very sad and, and, and literally grieve and feel like, you know, because, look, if you haven't, let's say, if you have a dog that you're used to spending a lot of time with and walking three or four times a day, how many hours a day do you spend with this dog? And then the dog is suddenly not there. There's a real, real void mm-hmm. um, in your life. And so, yes, I think losing an animal can be, in, you know, depending obviously on the animal and the person and, and the connection, but it can be a really significant thing and traumatic thing for quite a few people. Okay, Sarah, thank you for asking that question. Okay, Guy Winch, thanks so much for being on Talk with Francesca today. Emotional first aid, and I assume that we, you can get your book on um, Amazon. They can get it on Amazon and really every online bookseller or go to my website, guywinch.com, and they can get all kinds of links to independent bookstores as well. Fantastic. Thanks so much for lots of great information. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. As usual, the time went way, way, way too fast. We've got to wrap things up. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my awesome producers, Brian and Pete. Keep your questions coming. Write to me and let me know what's on your mind. Next week's show, The Confidence Code, What Women Should Know. We're going to do it all again next Saturday at the same time, 7 a.m. See you then.